Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the experience of the Apostle Peter, which he reflected upon as thinking about the transfiguration of Jesus. And as we think about it today in another context, please guide us and lead us in the knowledge of your truth. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Just before I begin, I'd like to acknowledge that this is a sermon I heard on my retake of a sermon I heard preached by the Reverend David Jones. It wasn't a Christmas sermon, but I've made it so. Well, given that it's Boxing Day, it's appropriate to start off with an illustration that has to do with Boxing Day, which is known in this country of ours for two big sporting events, one being the start of the Sydney to Hobart yacht race and the other being the Boxing Day cricket test played between Australia and the old enemy, England, for the Ashes. You can imagine this, if you will. The MCG is full as it can be this morning under COVID rules. The umpires and the players are out on the field and in their positions. The batters are at the crease. The bowler at the top of his mark. Fielders are in place. The umpire says play, but there's a slight problem. No one has the ball. Neither of the umpires has the ball. Not the captain of the fielding team. He doesn't have the ball. Not the opening bowler. No one has the ball. And a chant starts up in the stands from the crowd Never mind the ball, just get on with the game. Never mind the ball, let's get on with the game. It's ridiculous, isn't it, to think that. And yet, it's the attitude that so many people have to Christmas. Even though Christmas is probably the most celebrated festival throughout the world in Australia, and in Australia today, most Australians are celebrating Christmas without any reference to the one and who makes the core meaning of what Christmas is. Have you noticed how this has been so true in relation to the coming out of our lockdown plans that our Prime Ministers and Prime Minister and Premiers have all been spruiking, all with the purpose that we can all have Christmas together? It's such an oddity, isn't it? Being together for Christmas and observing Christmas is so high on people's agenda, but they would be mortally offended if you were to suggest that maybe they're not Christians. It's almost as odd as saying, never mind the ball, let's just get on with the game. In effect, to be saying, never mind Jesus, let's just get on with Christmas. Never mind him. Let's just have Christmas. And just to strike that point home, there was a news headline in September. Did you read that one? Which read, Disastrous Christmas Predicted. Did you hear that? Disastrous Christmas Predicted. And why was that? Were church services to be banned? Were nativity scenes to be ruled out of order? No. Online orders had reached an all-time high. Production lines for all the cool gadgets that people will order have reached an all-time low. 
It's Christmas without Christ. We've seen it all before. We'll see it all over again. But the Apostle Peter says, wants us to know that you can't do that with Jesus. You may well be able to do it with other religions such as Buddhism or Islam, but you can't do it with Christianity because Christianity is not rooted in a philosophy. It's not rooted in a teaching, but it's rooted in an actual fact, a historical event, an event that took place in time and space. See, you can no more have Christianity without Jesus as you cannot have cricket without the ball. And the only Christ that there is, the only Christ that we know of, is the Christ of the Scriptures, the Christ of the Apostles who spoke of him, the Christ who is pointed to by the Old Testament prophets, the Christ who came supernaturally into the world according to the scriptures, the Christ revealed to us in the pages of those scriptures. And so the question is, did he really come? Because if he did, then that changes everything. Did he really come miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? Was his birth announced by angels to shepherds in the fields around Bethlehem, to the wise men who came from the east? with their gifts, or is it all just an urban legend? Are we wrong and the world right? Perhaps you have a sneaking suspicion that all the supernatural stuff of angels and virgin birth is an embellishment made up by the church at a later date. Maybe you've been led to believe that the New Testament came into existence at the end of a long process of Chinese whispers. And the facts got lost along the way. That we've ended up with what we have is fiction and not fact at all. But sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. And Peter insists that he was an eyewitness to something. How can we sure about this? That the Christmas day we enjoyed yesterday wasn't something completely out of touch with reality and that we are right and the world is wrong. Well, Peter gives us two reasons, two very good reasons why we need to take what he said very seriously and not dismiss anything in the scriptures as a fairy story or a fable. Two reasons. The first is found there in verses 16 to 18 of 2 Peter 1 and it's the testimony of the apostles and it's there in the words of Peter we were eyewitnesses of his majesty we were eyewitnesses of his majesty I love the way that Peter puts it his majesty that's who Jesus is from a town that wasn't even on the map Nazareth born to peasant parents born as a baby But Peter describes him as majesty. That's what the word Christ means. I'm sure you know that this is not his surname. It's not Joseph and Mary Christ who had Jesus, their baby. But it's a title. Jesus, the Christ, or Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, God's anointed ruler, 
That's what the word Christ means. God's universal king, the one who is promised throughout the Old Testament scriptures. What kind of a king is he? When Solomon describes kingship in the book of Ecclesiastes, he says, where the word of a king is, there is power, there is authority. In other words, that's how you know you're in the presence of a king. There's authority and there's power in his word. And Peter says, we saw that with our own eyes with Jesus. See, our present queen, as a constitutional monarch, has no real power or authority. Unlike her namesake, Elizabeth I. If you had got on the wrong side of Elizabeth I, you only have to say one thing and it was off with your head and your head would leave your shoulders. Elizabeth I was an absolute monarch. So Solomon knew what in saying this, if you want to see majesty, if you want to know what that looks like, where the word of a king is, there's power, there's authority. And Peter says we are eyewitnesses of that. We saw that with our own eyes. We saw that in Jesus Do yourself a favour over the Christmas break. If you've never read a gospel record of the life of Jesus before, pick one up and read it. Start with the Gospel of Mark. It's the shortest, it's the quickest to read. Peter would say it's the best one to read because it's a summary of the things that he preached. That's, That's what theologians believed. That all that Peter preached and told about Jesus, was handed over to Mark to write him to write it down. And so read Mark's Gospel, the shortest of those Gospels, and you see for yourself that Jesus had authority over all the ancient enemies of the human race, all the things that threaten to destroy us, all the things that make this world a miserable place. Sin. Disease death, evil spirits, the threatening forces of the environment. Read the four Gospels, all of them, and you'll find in the eyewitness testimony of the apostles, you'll find that Jesus only had to say the word and things were changed instantly. Instantly, the sick are healed, sins are forgiven, demons are cast out, instantly dead are raised. Even the wind and the waves obey his will. Here is one who has absolute authority over all these things. We saw it, Peter says. And there's an occasion in particular that he will not forget as long as he lives. It was when, as we read this morning, they were up there on the sacred mountain, that mountain of transfiguration, that was read to us in Luke 9, that Peter refers to in verses 17 and verse 18. Just for a moment, God, as it were, lifted the veil. And the apostles, Peter, James and John, saw Jesus as he really is in all his glory and all his majesty. And they heard the voice He received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. We were there, says Peter. We heard that voice. 
We saw what happened to Jesus with our own eyes. You'd better believe us. We were eyewitnesses of this event. Now I can imagine someone objecting. Well, of course, are these credible witnesses? Are they really, after all? They're all Galileans, most of them except for Judas. They're all friends of Jesus. They're all from the same neck of the woods. Well, yes, who better to have as eyewitnesses? I mean, if you want to know me, if you want to know who I am, what kind of a person I am, what's the best way to find out? Ask my wife. But don't do that today. Ask my kids. They grew up in my home. I'm their dad. If you want to know me, you ask the people that know me best. And these men, you see, they have lived with Jesus night and day for three years and more. James, who was Jesus' brother, well, he shared the same womb and most likely the same bedroom as Jesus. Yet he could say of Jesus in his letter, that he is the Lord of glory. John was the disciple that Jesus loved and he said of him, we beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Peter's testimony is all the more convincing because you've a look at the context of his letter as Verity read to us, you'll see that he's about to die. He's in his late 60s. Jesus had warned him at the end of John's Gospel that when he was old, when he got older, someone would grab him and drag him to his death. And now he's reminding his readers of these facts because he knows that the end is near, that one day he'll be taken to a violent death, not peacefully in an old nursing home. In fact, we know that from history he was crucified upside down. And that's about to happen. Would you be prepared, would you be prepared to be crucified upside down for something that you'd made up, for a fairy tale? All of the apostles gave their lives for the message that they taught. Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified, Matthew was killed by the sword, Paul was beheaded, John died in exile, James, the brother of Jesus, was stoned to death, Philip was crucified, Simon was crucified, James, the son of Alphaeus, was crucified, Thomas died at the end of a spear, Bartholomew was crucified, James, son of Zebedee, was killed by the sword. Would you go to a martyr's grave for something that you knew wasn't true? Something you'd made up. Something you'd been led to believe but you knew was false. That's reason number one to believe the Christmas story. The testimony of the apostles who all died because of what they believed to be true. And then there's reason number two in verses 19 to 21. It's the testimony of the scriptures. 
Verse 19 says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. See, the coming of Jesus into the world was not just attested to by eyewitness accounts, but it also confirms the Old Testament prophecies about him. Do you know how many there are? There are 322 prophecies about the Messiah. 322. And they tell you about the Messiah who is coming into the world. They tell you how he's going to be born, where he's going to be born, how he's going to grow up, what he's going to say, how he's going to say it, what he's going to do and how he's going to die and how he's going to live again. 322 of them. There are even details like the number of coins that are going to be used to betray him. Now the mathematical compound probability of this, of 322 prophecies being fulfilled in one man, is 1 in 84 followed by 100 zeros. In other words, it doesn't happen every day. I'm not a gambling man, but I would say if you're not a believer and you've never checked this out for yourself, the odds are very much against you and not to believe in the Messiah is to take a huge gamble. You want to take what the apostles and the prophets said and you need to do what Peter says and pay attention to what the scriptures say about this Messiah. See here how Peter gets so excited about the scriptures over his experience. Think of that. As an eyewitness, he'd been up on the mountain and there he'd heard God speak and he'd seen Jesus transfigured before his eyes and you'd think he'd write, well, I saw something incredible. There's nothing that can top that. And some might think, well, if only I could have an experience like that. If only I could climb into the time machine and see this event for myself or have God speak to me now. Well, then I might believe. Is that what you're waiting for? Is that the basis of your faith? Because if it is, it's faulty. Peter is saying something that we have something more sure here in the scriptures. Better than his experience. Mountaintop experiences can be explained away. They can be interpreted different, differently. But here in the Bible we have God's interpretation of what Jesus came to do. These are not cleverly devised myths. This is the unfolding story of God This is not made-up fictitious anecdotes. This is God's own testimony about his Son. So in verse 21, Peter writes, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture comes to one man, one's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. The Bible isn't isn't man's words about God. It's God's word 
to man about Jesus. It's not man's words saying, well, this is what we think God is. It's God's revelation of himself and his revelation centres in Jesus. And Peter says, you better pay attention to it like a light shining, like a lamp shining in a dark sky. The Bible doesn't pretend to answer all our questions, but it's like a lamp that shines in a dark place. And how grateful you have been, no doubt, in the middle of the night for a torch or a bed light or your phone light or some lamp by your bed to stop you from tripping over in the dark. And God's word is like that. A lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we only need that lamp and that light until the day dawns. That is, when Jesus returns. And when he does, you won't need the light of the scriptures anymore. You'll have him. But while we do not have him, remember that Jesus is the morning star that shines in the darkest night, just before the dawn breaks. He's the root and the offspring of David. So keep your eyes on him, no matter how dark it is around you. Keep trusting in him whom the scriptures point us to for when he comes back again as Revelation tells us there'll be no need for the sun or the moon to shine for the glory of the Lamb will be our lamp. The Lord God will give us light and we will reign with him forever and ever. So what then? If the object of Peter's testimony and the scripture's testimony is Jesus and if he is returning to usher in the fullness of his kingdom then the answers to these questions that follow are vital. Questions like how can I be sure that I will live with him? Why did he come? Why did he lay aside his glory and come into this world? I think there's a clue in verse 1 of chapter 2 where Peter warns about false teachers How do you recognise a false teacher, he goes on to say. It's not by what they say, it's by what they don't say. See how he describes them? He says they deny the Lord who brought them. He doesn't say the Lord who taught them, but the Lord who brought them. They don't deny that. They don't deny that he taught. They don't deny that Jesus is a great teacher, that he's got some good things to say to the world. These people deny not the Lord who taught them, but the Lord who bought them. The very thing that makes Christianity unique. It's what distinguishes it from every other world religion. It doesn't matter if Buddha or Confucius or Muhammad ever existed, because if they did, they're long dead. And what remains of them is what they taught. But Christianity is rooted in time and space and history. It's about what actually Jesus did for us, not what he taught us. He is the Lord who bought us. He gave his life as a ransom to pay for the sins of many. That's why he came supernaturally into the world in this rescue mission. You know, it's a fairly regular thing when you're driving the car to hear from behind you or beside you or in front of you an ambulance or a siren of some sort coming your way and you're going to have to get out of the way. Ambulance, fire rescue, police. And have you seen that? 
And you'll, you'll know what it is to suddenly think, oh, I need to act. I need to get out of the way. And you watch them as they come. They break all the laws that are put in place in order to rescue. Doesn't matter that the light is red. Doesn't matter that it was a stop sign. Doesn't matter that they're on the wrong side of the road. They break all the laws in order to get to the rescue. And that's Christmas, isn't it? When Jesus came into the world, he broke all the laws. It doesn't happen that way. But Jesus broke all those laws. Jesus broke all the natural laws in order to get to the rescue. That's why there was an outburst of the miraculous when he came. That's why there was a reactive outburst of the demonic when he came. Because the devil knew what he came for and wanted to object and obstruct. It was a rescue mission and all the sirens were blazing. Except you might not recognise at first glance that's what the angels were doing. They were sounding the siren of his arrival. Christianity is unashamedly a rescue religion. What does the hymn say? He came down to earth from heaven, who is Lord and God of all, and his shelter was a stable and his cradle was a stall. With the poor and mean and lowly lived on earth our Saviour holy. And there's another apostle who had something to say about this. It's the Apostle Paul. This is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. There's no Boxing Day cricket without the ball. There's no Christmas without Christ. And there's no other way to be saved except through faith in him who came into the world on a rescue mission. Come to him and believe the testimony about him and be truly blessed this Christmas and know what joy to the world is all about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bring thanks to you for the wonder of your acts on our behalf, the deeds that you have done, things that we could never have done for ourselves. We didn't build a ladder or a tower to climb up to reach you, but surely we can say God is in this place as Jacob once did. We thank you that you came down to us. You entered our world, your glory veiled, not to be served but to serve and to give your life that we might live. We praise you and thank you for the rescue mission of our Saviour. We thank you for the words and the record that's found in the scriptures of the apostles and their testimony and their faithfulness to that testimony, even to death, reminding us of the truth 
of their claims. We thank you that all these things combine together with the testimony of the scriptures to point us to the one who saves, no longer a baby, but a living Lord and a risen Saviour. Encourage us and strengthen us in this today and send this message out, we pray, to the whole world that all who are called by your name might hear and believe your testimony about your Son. We thank you for this and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.